Trust everybody had a restful evening and got much sleep. I won't embarrass anybody to see if they came an hour early this morning and turned around and went home. Um, I can't believe people used to talk about being late on Sunday morning at time changes. And I can see the springtime, but I don't understand why somebody would be late in the, in the fall and gain just a little bit of extra time. Context when we deal with Scripture is really important. And that's why every week when I come up here and we start talking about Matthew, and this morning we're in Matthew 6 again, that's why we remind ourselves that with each section that we talk about, it is just a snippet in a larger part of a sermon, a sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And if you recall, it took place on a hillside just outside of Capernaum. Uh, We're not really sure how many were there. We know that there were 12 apostles we know that there was a small group that, or a group that called themselves disciples. We're not sure how large it was. We also know that there were some religious leaders in attendance and some curious onlookers. Some think that the scene would have been a few hundred people, but we just don't know. But this is the scene that Matthew invites you and I to listen to and to learn from, to sit at the Master's feet. Jesus at this point has spoken a lot about ethics. He's called out hypocritical actions. Those who were hard at heart, arrogant, devoid of sincerity. And that is in contrast to Jesus' call to you and I to live a life of genuineness, to be devoted to God's righteousness. First century Jews, though, would have seen the scribes and Pharisees as those that would set the bar for religious piety. But Jesus reminds us that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the Sermon on the Mount lays out a a different path to obtain righteousness, to enter that kingdom of heaven. One must first abandon themselves and come to Christ in, in complete humility. His words point to salvation. For you and I, listening post-cross, we understand fully what Jesus was pointing to. He was pointing to the cross and his substitutionary death there. He was pointing to the sacrifice that paid for our sins and brought appeasement, brought reconciliation and peace with God. And once the gospel is believed... We are called, you and I are called to live out what we call these kingdom norms. So our next section is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And it's more of what it means to live as a citizen in God's kingdom. It also serves as a warning to an ever-present danger that Christians face. That danger is wealth. Well, it may sound odd for some, money does strange things to people. Every time I met with a client and we got talking about money and wills and estates, I asked them, do you have a will? And I said that for a reason. And many of them would say, no, 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 it's okay. My children will be fine. Everything will be divided up nicely. And I would shake my head and go, really? Because that's not what statistics say. Even with children of God, even with people of faith, 
When it comes to money, strange things happen. See, while poverty will lead a person to cry out to God, wealth can easily lead a person to self-reliance and arrogancy. And wealth comes with its own worries, such as, am I going to lose it? See, if you don't have money, you don't worry about losing it. When you do have it, it takes on a whole different meaning. The accumulation of possessions and wealth can rob a person of time, time to do the more important things in life. To quote a, a children's program, the more you have, the more you have to have to take care of the things you have. Let that sink in. The more you have, the more you have to have to take care of the things you have. People are forever buying larger homes. And, and, and how many of those large homes, how many sheds do they have on their property? And after every Christmas, what is the big sale at Canadian Tire and Home Hardware? Someone said it. Storage containers. That's the sale every January. More storage containers. And let's not forget, every town has one of these. No matter how large or how small, they seem to have this. When they run out of room at their homes and in their garages and at their cottages, storage units. Everybody has a storage unit business. And if you can't drive there, they will now drop off a container in your, in your driveway that you can store your stuff in your backyard if you so choose. See, the road of faith is littered with those who have been sidetracked by wealth. Think about King Solomon. And if you're not familiar with King Solomon, take some time to read through the book of 1 Kings, the first 11 chapters. And don't miss reading the book of Ecclesiastes as he grapples with some of those issues. And how about Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament? The issue in their life wasn't that they kept back some funds from the sale of a parcel of land. That wasn't the issue. The land was theirs to do what they wanted to do with. The issue was they wanted it both ways. They, they wanted to look generous, so they said they had sold this land and they were contributing to the needs of everybody, but they also wanted the wealth and the money to stay with them. So they lied. They said, oh, we've given it all, and they really hadn't. They kept some for themselves. Their desire to be wealthy or to get wealthy or stay wealthy got in the way. And what about Demas, a companion of the Apostle Paul? He'd probably fallen into this trap, wealth trap too, allowing the things of this world to cloud his way and to move away from the Apostle and the missionary journey. The road of life is littered with many believers who get caught in the trap of wealth and possessions. Let's pray. Father, as we enter your word this morning, and as we enter to listen to the words of Christ spoken so many years ago on the hillside, Father, there have been worries and stresses over the last week in our lives. We ask that we'll be able to push those aside, to focus in what you have for us, and to learn from it, 
to evaluate our own life. Are there areas that we need to change or to learn from? So may you work in our hearts through your spirit this morning in us. In Christ's name we pray. So if you're not already there, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And our passage this morning neatly divides into three sections. And the three sections are this. There are two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. We'll begin with the two treasures in 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Jesus is aimed, aims right here for our possessions. First with the negative command. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, some well-meaning people will read this verse and begin to denounce all wealth as evil. And that the Bible excludes us from owning any treasure. And they'll point to a proof text. They'll point over to Matthew chapter 19 and the rich young ruler. The problem is Matthew 19 is not to be considered normative to how we handle wealth. See, being God, Jesus knew the man's heart. And as the young ruler asked how he could gain entrance to the kingdom of heaven, he was looking for this checklist that he could go, yeah, I did that, yeah, I did that. And it was all about him, but Christ could see through that. So his first question was, you need to keep the law. And the young ruler looked back and said, well, yeah, I've done that. I can go through the law and say I've perfectly kept every one of them. So Jesus upped the ante a little bit. Knowing that he was just trying to justify himself, Jesus ups the ante and he looks at him and he wanted to expose his prideful heart. And he says, okay, you've kept them all. Now go sell all your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and come and follow me. If you read the story, you know the ending. It was too much for him. See, the issue wasn't the man's wealth. The issue was the man's heart. In in biblical exposition, context is so important. And, and, And so is understanding the fact that all Scripture must agree. So wealth, wealth has not become evil, and that's not what Christ was saying. Abraham, called the friend of God, was a very wealthy man. Joseph was never condemned for, what did Joseph do? He encouraged Pharaoh to set money aside, set, store up the grain and the food for future use. Solomon, King Agur, instructed us to save for a rainy day. In Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, we read this. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Or we can think of Joseph of Arimathea. He lent Jesus his tomb. He was a wealthy man. Lydia, in Acts 16, is a great example of a wealthy businesswoman. 
She used her wealth to both bless Paul and his missionary companions. 1 Timothy 5.8 commands us to provide for not only our family, but for extended family that might be in need. And again, in 1 Timothy 6.17-19, we read this. As for the rich in this present age, he's not condemning them, but for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of which it, what, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus is not calling out wealth; rather, he's calling out and add our attitude toward wealth. See, the accumulation of wealth is not to be the end goal of a believer. John Rockefeller personified this. John Rockefeller was obsessed with his wealth. And if you don't know who he was, he was an oil magnate. He was a business person, and he had money. And he was asked this one question. Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And that was at the height of his fame in his career. And he looked at the person, and he said this, one more dollar. That's not to be the life of a believer. Jesus points out the reasons why a myopic focus on wealth is not to be the focus of a believer. Treasures and possessions here on earth are temporal. And as worn out as the phrase is, it's really still true. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You don't take it with you. Verse 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus' reference to moths and to rust is a reminder for you and I of how temporal treasures here on earth are. It's just this reminder that no matter what you do with your possessions, nature has a way of breaking things down over time, and they become useless. Correct. I was recently out for a walk, and as we walked, there was this old tractor beside the trail. It was no longer good. Time had taken its toll. It had completely useless at that point and rusted out. And it was a Ford. Um, <laughs> where's Jim? <laughs> But also we must realize this, if nature doesn't get it, men look for ways to relieve us of our possession and of our money, either through outright theft or through a scam. And it's forever trying to hang on to it. The warning is against the life focused on the accumulation of more and more. The warning is against selfishness and extravagant living. Jesus not only warns about the futility of chasing the almighty dollar, but he points to where you and I can lay up true treasure, treasure that will last, and we can send it ahead of us. The question is, 
how do we send treasure ahead of us to heaven? Now, there are two interpretations to this. When it talks about laying up treasures in heavens for ourselves, the first is a very narrow context. Uh, the focus from some Bible scholars would say is on material possessions here. So it's pointing towards the term treasure, which is defined as what is stored up, a storeroom treasury, a precious deposit. So the focus becomes on your wealth and what you do with your money. And in, in using your money for the Lord, we're able to build treasures in heaven. And we use the money for the Lord by meeting the needs of others around us. Well, that common thought is, is a good one, and it does flow well into the next section of the sermon, and it does represent well. But there's a second line of thought to interpret this, and that's a broader context of the whole sermon. So when we talk about treasures, we're looking at and interpreting it to the whole sermon that we've seen so far. So treasures may be living a righteous life, living our faith despite the persecution we might receive, being a light to the world around us in evangelism, not being an angry person but learning to control our temper, dealing with our lust, treating others with loving kindness, forgiving those that have wronged us, telling the truth, giving to the needy, praying and fasting. All done for the right reason, all done in the right attitude. I lean towards the broader context of our whole life being an offering to the Lord. And money is just part of that equation. And I think verse 21 gives us that impression. And I believe it's later confirmed at the end of this section in verse 24. That what we're looking here and what Jesus' concern here is with our loyalty. And that loyalty covers all of our life, not just the finances. So we're living out our loyalty in all areas of life. I know it could go either way, but I think the main point, whether you just look at the finances or you interpret a little more broadly, is Christ is looking for singleness of devotion. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Or as Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. To quote loosely R.T. France from his commentary in Matthew, he says this, it's not so much that Jesus is concerned with a man's wealth, but with his loyalty. Materialism is in direct conflict with loyalty to God. And the danger of amassing possessions is that the treasure will command the disciples' loyalty, that material affluence will breed materialism. The point is, whatever you and I most highly treasure will occupy our heart. Embracing your mind and your emotion. Think of the things you treasure. And it's those things that you treasure that will most subtly influence your life and the direction you take and your values. I've met people over the years who their, their sole goal in life is to amass as much money as they can 
to retire with this boatload of savings and all their choices through life along the way were based on how they could save and how they could make more money. And in their journey of life, they were willing to sacrifice relationships along the way. They were too busy earning a living to ever really have made a life for themselves. All they knew was work. All they worried was about money. It strained their marriage relationship. It strained the relationship with their children. And now that they're retired... Well, they face a few health challenges. We've all met those who work and work and work and work, and then they retire and they die. Because everything was focused on work and the accumulation of money. The question is, what what guides your life? What guides my life? Does that guiding force, does it bring light or darkness? Look back to me. Let's look at the two eyes in verses 6, 6, 22, and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The statement is, is straightforward. The eye is the window that allows light into your whole body. If the light is, if, if your eye is pure, if it's not distorted, if there's no disease, then light pours in that window. The body then can move freely about, and it's not bumping into things. You're not hampered by tripping over obstacles. You can see clearly. The implication here is Jesus is the spiritual light to man. That if we allow that light to shine or the spiritual truth to shine in the heart and the soul of a person, then we can maneuver through life. The psalmist understood this. Psalm 119, 17 and 19. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. See, if we're right with God, if we're devoted to Him and to His righteousness, we'll live a healthy life full of light. Interestingly, the word Matthew chooses for healthy can be translated this way. Sound, good, same as, or single. See, a healthy eye, a single eye, a singleness of devotion is which the context is what the context suggests. But if the eye is bad, if the eye is unhealthy, well, that word can be translated as evil, wicked. It's used to describe a negative quality of an object or a negative moral quality of a person or an action opposed to God. So if your eye is bad, if it's opposed to God, your body or your life will be full of darkness. John MacArthur, I like what he had to say concerning this verse. How much worse when the problem is not merely impaired vision, but corruption of one's spiritual nature so that the darkness actually emanates from within and affects one's whole being. 
Montgomery Boyce raised an interesting and a legitimate question for believers, for all of us to ask ourselves this morning. Let me ask you a question. Do you see spiritual things clearly, or is the vision, is your vision of God and His will for your life clouded by spiritual cataracts or nearsightedness brought on by the unhealthy preoccupation with things? I'm convinced that this is true for many Christians, particularly those living in the midst of Western affluence. Now and then people will complain to me that they are confused about the Christian life or about God's will for them. Well, it's not surprising. And what is more, it will always be this way for the one who knows his way around the supermarket or brokerage house more than he knows his way around the New Testament. The warning with the two eyes. The warning is against losing our spiritual vision. Jesus' final word in this section in verse 24 lays out the case clearly. He's talking about our loyalty, a singleness of devotion. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Two masters. The word here in, in, in 24, verse 24 for serve is a derivative of the Greek word doulos or slave. You cannot be a slave to two masters. I'm only going to say this because I kept coming across it in my study. These, this verse in 24, it's not talking about your employment arrangement. So if you have two bosses, could you have two jobs? That's not where verse 24, I found it odd, but it kept coming up again and again. I'm thinking, how are they getting that from here? A love for God will show itself in devotion to God. That means you're going to place everything, time, talents, abilities, influence, your money, everything at the disposal to serve God. Loving God is more than an emotion, but it comes from one's heart and soul and mind and strength. So when Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? When he was asked that question, what did he answer that? Matthew chapter 22. Here was his answer in verses 36 and 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the, prof the law and the prophets. To love God is a singleness of devotion. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. One need not look any further than Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples. He was pilfering from their money all along. He was willing to sell Christ out to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. In the end, he was left guilt-ridden. Possibly by returning the silver, he was trying to undo what he had done 
or at the very least, clear his conscience. The end result, though, Judas went out and hung himself. He couldn't live with what he had done. Money is a habit of becoming a person's master. To be sure, Scripture has much to say about money. Evidence in the evening service. We've only just begun to scratch the surface after five weeks as we've talked about the theology of money. But one thing is clear. The trust in money, that's not to happen. It's not to be trusted. Our trust is to be in God, the God that created us, the God that saved us. So we first place our faith in Him, the God-man, not born out of man, but born out of the will of God through the miraculous virgin birth, living a sinless life, dying on a cross, taking our place, paying our debt, and then rising again on the third day victorious over death, making a way for reconciliation with God. That is our first place of faith. Our second place is to trust God every day for all our needs in life, devoting all we are and all we have to Him. He is our only master. Don't let your possessions or desires or acquire desire to acquire things sneak onto the throne of your life and become your master. See, money is a hard taskmaster. It's wicked, and it'll cost you more than you'll ever get out of it. See, our possessions and pursuits are to be in submission to God. The question for you and I this morning is, are they? All that we pursue, all that we want to gain, is it in submission to God? Or, or this morning, are you preoccupied, driven by a purchase or an investment, building your own financial empire? Are you worried about retirement? My kids came to me recently, and one's 27 and one's 23, and they said, hey, Dad, Dad, our, our investment's tanked. What should we do? Well, I had two answers for them. The first was, and don't get me wrong, if, if, if you're living off your investments right now and you've looked at them and you're a little concerned, I'm not saying that you're trespassing against God in any way or that you're serving the God of money. Perhaps to ease yourself, you may want to make an appointment and discuss with your financial planner where you are. But how I answered them was this. Stop looking at your investments every day. You're going to only drive yourself crazy. If every little blip in the stock market and the economy causes you concern, you've placed your faith in the wrong thing. I said, you guys are young. You have lots of time. Don't worry about it. And that second was asking them who they ultimately trust. I said, are you trusting in the stock market to provide for a future for you? Are you trusting in God? Jehovah Jireh. If the markets tank tomorrow like they did in the 1930s, would that shake your faith? I've never really understood this. We are willing, unseen, you can't see heaven. None of us have been there. 
we know one day we will die. That, that's guaranteed. And we're willing to come to faith in Christ and abandon ourselves and say, okay, Lord, I am going to trust you for eternity. Something I can't see. Something I can't touch. A matter of fact, we're willing to reach out and, and, and trust in a Savior that we've never seen, that we read of, that we trust the historicalness of this book, but we've never seen Christ. But we know and believe He's real. He works in our lives. So if we're willing to trust in this and our eternity beyond here, then if the, if the stock market tanked, if the economy just crumbled, does it shake your faith? I mean, you're willing to trust in the one for salvation for the things that you can't see. Are you willing to trust in the one for the things that you can see? Which master do we serve? One master, we can look around and we can see a road of ruins and lives ruined as they serve the God of money. And the other master looks at us and says, trust me, I will look after you. I will take care of you. So don't let your vision be clouded. Don't become preoccupied with, with things. Don't become tight-fisted. But be open-handed and allow God to use you and your finances. And allow your trust to go towards Him in all things that you do. There's an old hymn. It's from 1887. So I reckon that's 135 years ago now. It went like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. And while we do His good will, He abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that's what God is saying here in these verses, 19 through 24. Trust and obey. Don't put your trust in wealth. It will always, always deceive you. But put your trust in the Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we can trust you. And as we watch life around us and as things become a little rocky and we become concerned with, with wars around the world, as we come to be concerned with all the different things that happen in the financial field right now, Father, may we not be serving our possessions and, and, and trusting and serving the money, but Father, may our trust be wholly in you. May our eyes be healthy. May our, our devotion be towards you. Father, we, we thank you again that we can look into your word and that it's not an ancient text, but it's living and breathing and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it still is so very applicable 
to the journey that we walk in 2022. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.